Welcome to Living in Flow, The Secret of Transformation. And I'm very, I'm very excited about today's seminar. I have a lot to share with you. And I'm going to do the best I can to go through it in a way that doesn't feel too overwhelming, but feels very full. Now, I want to start with a quotation. It's, it's one of my absolute favorite quotes. I use it all the time. So anyone who's worked with me has probably heard it, but it's a quote so good, it's worth hearing again. And it's paraphrased. I don't even know if it exists anywhere in writing. I've never been able to find it in writing, uh, but I have it on good faith that it's legitimate because it's a quote of Gregory Bateson's. Uh, and Gregory Bateson is a, uh, Amer English, later American philosopher of the 1970s. And uh, he was a leader in the human potential movement. And I got this quote from his daughter, uh, Nora Bateson, who's a friend of mine. So even though I've never been able to find it in print, I feel very confident that it's a, a real quotation. And the quote basically says, all of the world's problems are the result of the difference between how we think and how the world works. And you know, I've continually found that to be a very powerful contemplation, you know, that reality, life, the world works a certain way according to certain principles. But our thinking is not always aligned with how the world actually works. And so when there's a, a discontinuity between the way we think things work and the way they actually work, obviously, uh, we're going to run into difficulties. So what we're going to speak about today in terms of living in flow has everything to do with aligning the way life works. And I hope that I'm going to be able to explain this in a way that will allow you to see that, that some of the ways that we've been taught about how life works I don't want to say they're inaccurate, and I think this is important. You know, it's not so much that they're inaccurate. It's that they are partial. They, they explain some things, but not others. And I, I really want to emphasize this at the beginning. I want to share with you an idea. There's certain ideas that I share almost every time I teach because I think they're so valuable. This is an idea that came from the philosopher William James. It's called vicious intellectualism. And it's, it's a part of our way of thinking. It's one of the ways of thinking that doesn't totally work. And it's that we assume that any positive assertion of truth negates the opposite. So if I say this way of thinking doesn't work, we assume, or if I say this way of thinking works, we assume that that means other ways don't work. That's not exactly true. Uh, life is complicated. And the ways that we've been trained to think about life and how it works do work for all kinds of things, but they're obviously partial, you know, because we wouldn't be in a world with as many problems as it is that, 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 had, that it has if we knew the whole truth about the way everything worked. Um, and that's where the quote from Gregory Bateson comes in. You know, the, the, the huge problems that all of us see in the world uh, in some ways can be seen as the result of the difference between the way we think things work and the way they actually work. So today I'm gonna to share with you some, I think very important ideas about the way things actually work, but I just am putting a disclaimer on this. I do not mean that other ways of thinking don't work. I'm just saying they're partial, you know, because because the, the, the danger with vicious intellectualism is, and, and most of us can see this in our own thinking, at least from time to time, we'll hear a new idea and we'll disqualify it because it's partial. But all ideas end up being partial. There isn't one idea that covers everything, but a new idea added to our mix of ideas can be a huge help. So that's what we're doing today. I'm going to share with you a paradigm shift, a new way of thinking about life and how life works that I think has been absolutely and utterly instrumental 
in my life. So one more piece of disclosure. Besides the fact that everyone asks me the question, how do I live outside of meditation? The other reason that I want to share this seminar is because I feel like it is absolutely the best possible way that I can express gratitude for the life that I have been given. Uh, it has been a very bizarre road, my life. Very, very strange indeed. And sometime when we have more time, uh, we can sit down and talk about it. Uh, but the end result has been really, I feel utterly blessed by this beautiful life in which I share the things I care about the most and love the most. And I have beautiful people like you to share them with. I mean, I don't know that anything could be better. And sharing with you how I think that unfolded for me over time and how I ended up with a life as beautiful as the one that I'm living is, is a way of, of expressing gratitude to the universe for having the privilege of living this life. So with those disclaimers and, and revelations, I want to start by sharing one paradigm shift that I think is really significant for us to, to adopt, to embrace, you know, to add to our other ways of being. And that is we have tended in our culture to be indoctrinated into, conditioned into a way of thinking about reality in which the primary metaphor or one of the primary metaphors is building and construction. You know, we, we construct, we make things, we do things. It's a huge part of our culture. And I think we would all be well served by shifting into a paradigm where we we're less preoccupied by building and construction and more concerned with growth and emergence. A growth and emergence is a, is a different way of being than construction and building. You know, you construct a house. I've often said you construct a house, but you don't construct a child. You know, you, 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 a children grow into adults. You don't construct them into adults. You don't build them. So growth is different. Growth is a process. It's a natural process that we can assist, but we don't control it. We don't, we don't make it. We have to understand how the process works. We have to understand how nutrition and environment and education affect the growth process, and then we can have a positive influence on growth, on growth. But it's not like building a house where you just buy the bricks and you buy the wood and the nails and you put it together and build it. You know, you're in complete control. Uh, and unfortunately, we tend to extend the metaphor of construction and building into domains of life where it's not the most appropriate metaphor and the one I want to speak about today is the domain of our life. You know, we often use the metaphor. We talk about building a life, constructing a life, as if a life is made up of materials and building techniques. You know, as if if you collected the right materials together and learned which techniques could be used to put them together, you could build a life. But I want to say that lives don't, aren't built and constructed, they emerge, they grow. And we can much more effectively influence how our life emerges when we understand that it's not just a construction. It's not just a set of materials that are bound together by techniques. So if you think about it for a moment, if you even just think about building a house, because ultimately I want to say that I, even building a house isn't really a construction, isn't, isn't only a construction. 
it's also an emergence. So, but if we think about building a house in the traditional way that we're taught to think about it, you, you know, what do you have? You have you have land that you start with, and then you have materials. You have wood. You have bricks. You have mortar. You have nails. You have tools, and then you have building techniques. And then you put those things together and, and hopefully you do it very, uh, very well. Hopefully you're skilled at doing it and then you can build a house. Uh, now, the difficulty or the challenge with that metaphor, the weakness of that metaphor is it's, it's very superficial. The house is just the stuff on top of the ground or maybe, you know, a little foundation below. But I want to say that, that your house and, and I don't know if you, I'm sure many of you already knew this, but in, in dream symbology, a house always represents yourself, which I find to be fascinating uh, for reasons that we'll, we'll just, we'll, I will disclose right now. Your house is not just a set of materials constructed in a certain way. There's a lot more that goes in if you build your own house or even if you rent. I've, I've rented a house for years and years and years. But there's so much of your preferences, history, attitudes that, has, that goes into that dwelling. It really is a reflection of yourself. You know, whether you want to live in the country or you want to live in the city or you know, I'm living in the middle of the city. I live in the middle of Philadelphia and I have for the past eight years. And I wanted to live in the middle of Philadelphia because I had lived out in the country for 20 years and I wanted to be where there was more people. So that history of having lived in the country is part of what's built into this house. And so I just want you to take a moment to think about your own place, your own dwelling place, and to think about the aspects of your history, the aspects of your personality, the aspects, you know, different attitudes and preferences that are built into your choice of, of where you live. Uh, and for some of you, it may be a home that you bought and or built. You know, for others like, like me, it may be a place that you rented and you think, well, the fact a rented house couldn't be much of a uh, reflection of me, but actually it totally is a reflection of me because I never wanted to buy a house because I thought it was easier to rent a house. And, uh, and so it completely reflects my belief that owning a home is time consuming and energy consuming. So if you just think for a minute about the place that you live, not as a construction, or a building, right? We even call we even call these things buildings. If you don't think of it as a construction or a building, but think of it as an emergence, it's a, it's a it's an extension of you in in a in the form of a house. And you'll see that it has when you think of it that way, then the house starts to have roots. And this this is a big part of what I want to convey today when we start to think about our life as a growth and an emergence we start to see that it has roots that the the manifestation of our life you know the place we live the work that we do the people that we spend time with all of those which are kind of like the material of our life they all have roots they have deep roots, and, and today I want to take you through how that root system works. How does the root system of a life work so that the life that you live emerges, it grows out of a root system? And, and I can kind of tell you the, a big part of the point of today's seminar is to realize that you can't transform your life unless you transform it from the roots up. It has to, you, the transformation has to take place all the way down to the, to the beginning. So this seminar is called Living in Flow. And what I mean by living in flow, at least for today, at least in this seminar, is 
living in flow means consciously living your life from the roots up. And in, in our culture, we tend to be trained to be fixated more on the surface and, and more on the things that happen in our life, the people that are part of our life, the activities that we do, the places where we spend time. When we think about transforming our life, we think about transforming those things. And of course, those are part of transforming your life. They're an important part of it. But you can't necessarily transform those things unless you do it from the roots up. So the analogy that I uh, like to use is, let's say you have a flower garden and you want to have a vegetable garden. You can't just cut down the flowers and then wait because you know vegetables won't grow, the flowers will grow back. So unless you really work from the roots up, you can't change the garden essentially. So when we're talking about transformation, we're talking about radical change. And radical change means change that starts at the roots. So one of the things that I love is etymology, which is the kind of uh, origin of words. I think you can learn so much from the origin of words. And the origin of the word radical, its most recent origin is kind of middle, middle ages, mid 14th century, uh, Latin roots, radicalis, which means having roots. So radicalis is a, is a Latin word for anything that has roots. And from that root, from that we get the word radical. But this is an interesting fact I only found out this morning when I was doing some research. It has earlier roots in something called the Proto-Indo-European language. The Proto-Indo-European language, this is one of these total asides that is just fun to share. The Proto-Indo-European language is a language that was believed to have been spoken throughout Europe from about the years 4500 BC to 2500 BC in kind of the Neolithic and Bronze Age. And in that language, and how they know this, I really don't know, but in that language, the roots of radical is something called rad, spelled W-R-A-D, uh, which means branch or root. So the two roots of the word radical are branch, root, uh, and having roots. So the idea of radical means, if we think of radical change, it means change at the roots. It doesn't mean intense change. It means change at the very root of where something's emerging from. And so what I'm conveying today is that in order to transform our life, we need to do it radically in the sense that we do it from the roots, not radically in the sense that we do something crazy, you know, which sometimes that's what radical means. It means I'm going to make a radical shift, means I'm going to do something that nobody would expect that's totally wild, but that's not how I mean radical. Radical means we need to change from the roots up so that why? Because your life, and this is the whole point, your life is an emergence that comes through a root system and emerges onto the surface, the things we see, the people, the places, the activities that we do. And so if we don't change the roots and look, how many people have tried to make changes in their life and were only able to do it for a little while and then found that they went back to the way they used to be? Me, you know, a, a ton of times, of course. You know, we, we've all experienced that. We've tried to change. We've had an idea of change. 
we've wanted to change, we've got very excited about change, and we've even changed for a while. And then over time, slowly, we realize, oh, it's all gone back to the way it was. That's because we didn't get deep enough into the root system, right? So if the root system doesn't change, inevitably, it's like weeds in a garden. You know, if you don't get them all the way up, they're going to come back. It doesn't matter how many times you cut them down, they grow back again. So if you want something, if you want a different life to emerge, then we need to go deep enough into the root system. I kind of thought through what I see as the, as one way at least of thinking through this root system. And it starts with uh, feeling, changing how you feel. And by changing how you feel, I mean it in a very specific sense. I mean, I mean, changing how you feel about life. You know, that initial contact point with life is the one that matters. We all feel some way about life in general. Before we have specific feelings about aspects of life, we have an overarching feeling. It's like, I like to call it, it's the feeling, it's the direct, it's direct contact, it's first contact. Our first contact with life, what is it? Is it, is it fearful? Is it joyous? Is it trusting? Is it defended? Is it guarded? Is it open? You know, what is the first contact? Because your life, you know, the, as you get deeper in the root system, the deepest place in the root system has the biggest influence over what will eventually emerge at the surface. And so most of my work as a meditation, as a teacher of meditation and awakening, has had to do with this first contact. This is, this is the thing that you work on, that you have the chance to work on in meditation. Because in meditation, when you're not doing anything, there's not very many distractions, it's just you sitting with your eyes closed, you really can see what that first contact with life is like for you. You see, you know, am I able to just sit here easy? Or, or when I sit, am I constantly second-guessing what I'm doing, worried about doing it wrong? Am I constantly thinking something's wrong? You know, you, you really see what your fundamental core first contact with life is like. And I want to say that in our culture, pretty much all of us, myself included, have been trained to have that first contact be some degree of fear and anxiety. This is, this is, yeah, this is our cultural ep epidemic of anxiety and fear. Constantly low-grade worried that things are going to go wrong, and feeling that we must control the outcome of life. And, and then and when we get into meditation, we see that playing out. Even when, when we're told, as I always tell people when I teach meditation, this is the practice of no problem. So there's no way to do it wrong. Literally, you can't do it wrong. Whatever happens is right. And it's, you think, well, that would be easy. Because it doesn't matter what happens, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fine. But then we all discover how difficult it is for us to just sit and allow everything to be okay the way it is. And instead, we find all kinds of ways to at least question whether it's okay. Uh, now, of course, in meditation, if that happens, the, the answer is be okay with questioning. Even if you are certain something's wrong, be okay with the certainty that something, you know, you can't lose. When I say that, that you can't lose in this meditation, I literally mean it. You literally cannot do it wrong. There's no way to do it wrong. So the practice involves just allowing yourself to be okay with exactly the way things are without needing them to be any particular way. Just utterly relaxed. And that's your first contact. And what I'm saying is in terms of the kind of life of abundance, 
that I feel that I'm at least to a large extent blessed with, it, it emerges out of this first context of relaxed acceptance, you know, un, un, non-anxious acceptance of the way things are is the ground, it's the first contact. So what I want to do now is just sit with you. I just want you to be absolutely okay with whatever you happen to experience for the next few minutes. And then you'll see, is that easy for you or difficult? Hopefully it'll be easier now that I've explained it, but you know, you may find it challenging. So just sit quietly and be absolutely content, consciously content with exactly the way things are.
Okay, thank you very much. So it's my assertion, belief, that that first contact that we make with life, that we experience in meditation, is an absolutely essential first step in moving into a life of abundance, spiritual abundance. That if we, if that first contact point is in any degree of scarcity or lack or fear, it's not really going to be ultimately possible to build a life of abundance on top of that. Because that fundamental first contact point will rise up through the root system and it will shift things. Now, of course, just changing that is not enough, necessarily, but it's a very important part of the life transformation that I'm interested in and excited by. Now, I see five levels of this root system, and I want to go through each of them, at least briefly, for you. The first level is this first contact point. This is our foundational feeling about life, right? Not, not about any particular part of life, but about the experience of existence itself. And that's what you discover in meditation. And the second one I speak about is changing how you think. But I wanna be clear, when I talk about changing how you think, I'm not talking about analysis or logic. I'm talking about how you relate to thought itself. You know, is, do you relate to thought as, as something that you utilize? Are you in control of your thoughts? Are your thoughts in control of you? Do you recognize thought to be thought? Or do you mistake some thoughts to be reality? Uh, you know, and, and what are the underlying energies to your thinking system? Uh, and a lot of that has to do with habits. You see, this is another way we could talk about all this root system has to do with layers and layers and layers of habits. You know, and the, the life that you see around you, the people, the activities, the places, the, the, the material of life, the stuff that's easy to see, those are resting on layers of habits that are not so easy to see. And that's why it's very hard to change those surface circumstances for very long if you don't change the habits that rest underneath them. So one of our habits of mind, one of the very strong habits we have in mind is that our minds have been geared toward problem solving. Very, 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 very intensely toward problem solving. And that's not a bad thing. That's a very, very good thing. It's fantastic for solving problems. But just like the old saying goes, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything becomes a nail, right? If the, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything is something to be banged on. Now, it's not that banging is bad. Banging is great when you actually have a nail to, to hammer, but it doesn't work for every problem or it doesn't work for every circumstance. And similarly, the problem-solving mind, if the problem-solving mind is predominantly the one you have to work with, then guess what? Everything becomes a problem to be solved. And you don't really have, a life of abundance doesn't really emerge in that context, in the, in the context in which everything is a problem to be solved. It, that inherently is antithetical to abundance because it assumes a problem from the start. And we need to be in a place where we, where we learn how to relate to thought in ways that do not assume a problem from the start. And when you start to do that, you know, there's, there's all kinds of parts of our culture that will say, well, that's crazy. You can't just assume there's no problem. What if there's a problem? You know, which is very, very interesting because that's, that to us sounds like an incredibly compelling argument, right? You look naive. People, you know, there's, it's like a huge 
thing in our culture, which is, you know, you don't want to be naive. You don't want to look like you're, you're just pretending everything is okay, right? Nobody worries about, you know, no one, the opposite argument, which is, how can you just assume everything's a problem? What if, what if it's not a problem? That was like, well, we're culturally taught that assuming it's a problem isn't a problem. That doesn't cause difficulties. You know, you may be overcautious, but that's okay. You'll just be safer. But it's not necessarily okay. You know, assuming that everything is a problem limits what's possible for us. It means there's risks we'll never take. We'll never even think to take them. And we, we can't discover the fullness of our life if we're in a totally risk-averse consciousness. You know, and only when you are rooted in that deeper direct contact, which is trusting and open, can you then start to relate to life and to thought in ways that allow you to take risks because there's a fundamental trust to build on. If there's not, if the, if the first contact is mistrustful and fearful, it's very hard to take any risks. And if it's very hard to take any risks, it's very difficult for anything to change. Uh, I used to be a special needs teacher uh, of fifth, sixth, and seventh graders. And what I realized fairly early on is that for many of them, the biggest problem they had was that they wouldn't risk anything. They were so, uh, they were so afraid of, of realizing they couldn't do something that they wouldn't even try. And I remember how much time I would have to spend convincing a child to try, you know, they, they got really good at addition, but they'd never done subtraction on it. I'd have to explain to them, it's not that different if I, you know, and they don't want to try it. They don't want to try it for weeks, maybe months. Then one day I finally get them to try it. They figure they can do it. Then they'll do subtraction problems all day long, every day, because now they know they can do it. But then if you say, okay, now we need to do multiplication. Ooh, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to. And if our fundamental relationship to life has that energy in it, it's very difficult for things to progress. It's very difficult to live in flow that way because we, the flow keeps getting stopped. Now, the next one of the five up this chain is changing how we perceive. So, so this progression that I'm sharing with you goes from the most intimate and the most inner this first contact with reality, to our relationship to the thinking mind, and now our perceptions. So now we're starting to make contact with the world beyond us. And our perceptions are shaped by our thinking, and our thinking is shaped by our feeling, by this first contact. We don't see the world the way the world is. We see the world the way our senses present it to us. This, this has been one of the most life-altering realizations I have ever had, which, which is when I saw for myself that I am not living in reality. I'm living in a interpretation of reality, which may be more or less functional. But we see things the way our senses present them to us. And as I said, the way we perceive things is influenced by our relationship to thought and the habits of thought that exist in our system. And those are influenced by this first contact feeling experience we have. So if you go deep enough and you work with that first contact and you work with the thought, you will see your perception of reality change, which means you look at a circumstance or a situation and you'll realize you're seeing it differently. It's the most wonderful thing in the world to, to, to experience a spontaneous shift in perception. It's not that you're trying to see it differently. It's not that you're consciously reinterpreting it. It's just showing up as different. And at this level, at this level of shifting our perception, there is, there is some scientific evidence, it's certainly my belief, you're actually shifting your 
neurology. You're shifting, you're making changes in your inner wiring so that the world naturally and spontaneously shows up differently for you. Now next in the chain, and again, we're going from most inner to most external. So perception, that's probably lots of other ways I could break these up, but these are the ways that made sense to me. Perception, the next thing that I want to think about is speech, is the way we speak. So this is perception, we're making contact with the external world, but it's still an inner experience. But when we speak, suddenly we're actually engaged, you know, especially if we're speaking to someone else. The power of speech is so utterly profound. Now, for years of spiritual practice, uh, when I was living in community, we paid a lot of attention to how we spoke about things. Because the way that we speak is constantly reinforcing the way we perceive. And we are very social creatures. So the way that we speak with each other, the way we speak about each other, the, the way we speak about the world, it has a profound effect on us. Uh, I have a, uh, an inner, I have a, uh, an example I like to use of this. I, I'd say, well, imagine if you were in a crowd of people and you saw a flying saucer land on, on a tall building and you elbowed the person next to you and said, oh my God, I see a flying saucer on that building. And then they looked and said, I don't see anything. What are you talking about? You know, if one person does that, you'd be like, okay, whatever, they don't see it. And then you just knock on the next person. You go, look at that. And then if that person said, I don't see anything, it's interesting to imagine how many people would need to negate what you saw before you st stopped believing in yourself, believing in your own perception. And then how many more people would have to negate it before you actually didn't see it anymore, before you were actually talked out of your own perception so that when you looked, you didn't understand what you were thinking of before. And most of us can relate to the fact that this is how much influence culture and other people have over us. And this is particularly true in terms of our deepest spiritual revelations, which are like, they're like seeing a, a Martian land on, the, on a mountaintop, you know, so far away that the perceptions are so subtle. You know, how many people would have to either directly or indirectly tell you that you were crazy for some of the things that you've experienced before you would just erase them? My friend Jeffrey Kripal, who's a historian of religion at Rice University, one of the things that he writes and speaks about quite a bit is how much, how he believes that an enormous amount of spiritual and mystical experiences are, are, occur, but are so instantaneously and even unconsciously denied by the person who has them that they never surface. They never surface into conscious awareness because our culture, as I've heard him say, it has antibodies against these things, you know, and, and, and we all know that it's true. You know, we know that certain experiences we might have are considered woo-woo or naive. And, and in modern culture, being naive or woo-woo is definitely not a compliment. Uh, and so we have those antibodies exist inside us as well. And they'll, they'll do a job. They'll do a number on your most subtle spiritual, mystical experiences, and they'll sort of shove them out of, out of view because we don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be uh, alone. We don't want to be neglected. 
or, or relegated to the edges. So speech is really important. You know, if we're going to, to live in a different world, if we're going to take this, this deep first contact of trust and abundance, you know, that's what I'm saying you can discover in that first contact. If we want that to propagate through our relationship with our mind, to then affect our perception of reality, and then to be able to take root in the external world, the first root in place is speech. You know, you, 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 you have to continually, speech continually affirms and reaffirms a certain reality. And so that's the fourth. And then the last one is the actual actions of our lives. It's the things we choose to do. This is the one where culturally we tend to be uh, trained to give most of our attention to this. When we, when we think about changing, you know, we think about taking action. That's change often gets boiled down to taking action. But now, if you think about everything I've been sharing, just taking action, if, if your fundamental first contact with reality hasn't changed, and if your relationship to your mind hasn't changed, and if your perceptions haven't changed, and you're still speaking the same way, just taking action is, you know, that's like uh, throwing a tennis ball at a pickup truck, you know, how much effect that's going to have. And maybe you can do it, you know, you can muscle it up, muscle it up, I'm going to take action, I'm going to really force, I mean, how many times have I done that, you know, I'm going to force myself to be different, and you can do it for like a week, you know, and maybe if you're really, really motivated, you could do it for a little bit longer. But it's, that's not transformation. At best, it's change, it's effortful behavior modification, which is really not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about changing. I'm not talking about behavior modifying yourself into a life of abundance. I don't think it ultimately works. And it's not very fun. You know, that's, that's, that's not very fun at all. You're just forcing, you're using effort to force yourself into something. What we want is a natural emergence. This, the living in flow part of this seminar is we want a life of abundance and trust to naturally emerge. Why? Because our first contact is a contact in which there is trust and surrender and acceptance of life. And we're generating that sense and we're, we're having it confirmed for us. And then our thought processes are shifting and they're not looking at things with the suspicion of assuming there's a problem. You know, they're looking, thinking, you know, and, and you can do this. I know it sounds weird. People, well, how, if you're not looking at a problem, how are you looking? So even when things go bad, you're not going, oh, this shouldn't be this way. Who says it should be? Who says it shouldn't be this way? It's exactly the way it is. Obviously, it should be this way. This is what happened. You may not like it this way, but that's different. So the, the, the other question or the other relationship to have to it is, why is it this way? It's curiosity rather than judgment. Why is it this way? Why did this show up this way? Because if we ask why things are happening then things that we don't like or things that we want to change, we can discover how they emerged this way. And we can start to find out where in the root system we can make the changes that will allow something different to emerge. You know, this is, you know, this, when I say at the beginning, I want to, I don't want this, you know, this, I don't want this seminar. I don't want this seven week program. I don't want any of it to be about me telling you how to live because I literally have no idea how you should live. Um, I want it to be about me sharing how I have come to understand life works as an emergence of a root system. You know, everyone has to live their own life, their own unique life. Nobody knows. Nobody else knows what that, you don't even know what your life is supposed to look like. And, and even, even in the question of how should I live, even the assumption that, you know, because I meditate, I would know, which is kind of a crazy assumption to make anyway. But that's still, 
underneath that, there's still an assumption that somebody knows or I should know. But we don't really know how we should live. You know, what we want to do is align with the way life works, and then we'll discover how we should live because we'll discover what emerges out of that. And it, it may go in directions we could predict ahead of time. It may not go in directions we could predict ahead of time. My experience, which is why I'm so excited to share this with you, is that it works out better than I could have imagined. You know, this, the life that I'm living right now is a life so far beyond what I could have imagined 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, that it, it just makes me thrilled through and through to want to share with you this vision that has emerged over the decades that has led, I mean, led me into a life that literally was, it was unimaginable to me. It wasn't unimaginable in the sense that I could imagine doing it, but I didn't think that I could ever do that. It was unimaginable, meaning I didn't know such a life was possible. No one told me you could do this. Uh, there's so much that's possible that no one ever told us was possible. And there's lives that are possible that no one's ever lived. You know, so you may be living something that's, well, you will be living something that's totally unique to you and, and, and can't really be compared exactly to anything else. That's why nobody can really tell you what it's supposed to look like, in my opinion. And so, as I was saying, the fifth stage of these five essential shifts is, is living. It's, and this is the, as I said, this is the one we mostly are trained in. You know, now it's time to take action. This is like where it matters. You know, this is in our culture. Uh, this is, we're taught that this is like, this is where the rubber hits the road uh, in action. As if these more subtle layers didn't matter so much, which I think is exactly the opposite. The, the more subtle, the deeper layers are more significant because by the time you come up through the feeling, the thought, the perception and the speaking, and you get to the action, those, those, under, those things underneath are gonna completely limit what's possible in action. You know, and very often that's what we find. We want to, we want to, some, we want to go somewhere in action, but we find we can't get there. Why? Because, because the root system won't support that growth. It's not, it's not possible from where we are. And so when we, by the time we, we start to take action and we're standing in a different root system, you know, the, the beautiful thing about it is it's not just that we're behavior modifying. It's not just that we're um, saying, well, I always do this and I don't want to do that anymore. Now I'm going to do this. <clears throat> we, muscular, we, we use muscular effort to do something else. What's more amazing than that is we start to realize that there were choices we didn't know were available. And, you know, this was the biggest gift that my own spiritual teacher gave me right at the beginning. And it had nothing to do with what he was teaching. But it had to do with the fact that he was completely committed to his spirit. His spiritual life was his life. And no one had ever told me that was possible. You know, I mean, I'd gone through school. I'd gone through college. I'd gone through graduate school. I'd had counselors. You know, I had house, high school guidance counselors. Nobody said, oh, you could devote your whole life to your, you know, innermost spiritual feelings. That was never really an option. Uh, so it was something I never would have thought of, but I saw that that's what he and people around him were doing. And I thought, oh my God, this is an option. And this is where this, the, the part about changing how you live gets interesting when you start to see options that just didn't exist for you earlier. And if you have done work through the entire root system, new possibilities will emerge, which is much more exciting than just choosing between things that you find difficult to choose between. 
it's much more exciting to realize that you have completely new possibilities. And these could be huge possibilities like living a spiritual life, or they could be smaller possibilities. They could be smaller things. But as you see new possibilities and then choose to act in accordance with them, then that level of activity and uh, people and places, the circumstances, the material of your life changes. But you don't feel like you're changing it in the same way as you do when you're using that muscular behavior modification. You're more sitting in this miraculous emergence and saying, wow, this is amazing. A completely different life is emerging. Like this, this used to grow vegetables and now it's growing flowers. You know, and you don't exactly, you can't take credit for it all. I can't take credit for the life that I'm living. I mean, obviously, I was there when all the choices were made. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of our culture to think that our life is only the result of our choices. You know, that's, so from one point of view, yes, your life is the result of your choices. But from another point of view, the options you have to choose between set limits on what's possible. There's a great book called Bounce, uh, which is by a table tennis champion. And he basically wrote it because after becoming a table tennis champion, champion, everyone revered him as an example of someone who used talent and hard work to win at life. And he said, it's just not true. Yes, there was talent, there was hard work. He said, but I also happened to live in the right neighborhood. I had the right table tennis teacher. I was at the right school. I got the right opportunities. You know, my father bought me a table tennis set when I was four you know, so saying that I'm the, the, the champion table tennis player in England really means I'm the champion among those people who had that option, which is a very, very small percentage of the whole. And it's the same way for us. If all we're focused on is the life choices that we make, we're missing the much more vast opportunity to expand the possibilities that we have to choose between. So then, yes, of course, our choices are going to matter. But it's very different if you're choosing between a very small span of possibility or a much more enormous span of possibility. And that's a big part of what this is, this is about. As we, as we start, I'll just review quickly, as we start at this first contact feeling and we generate an experience of trust and fullness, at the base of life <clears throat> and then we shift how we think how our thought processes work our habits our patterns of thinking and that shifts our perception so we start to see the world differently and then we reinforce that with speech that opens up possibilities that we can now choose where they didn't exist before and the amount of transformation possible in your life is just beyond anything anyone ever told me was possible. Uh, and mainly in, in offering this seminar, I want to give anybody who feels compelled by it the opportunity to see how much transformation is possible and, and the, the different kind of life that can emerge from this, this first contact of spiritual abundance and trust versus the first contact of anxiety uh, and fear. And besides that, I really just want to say that uh, it was an absolute joy to be with all of you today uh, and to, you know, to be able to share this, what I consider to be very valuable information.